What an honor it is to be back with you again this evening. For all of you that are here, I thank you. I thank you for the effort that you have put forth in coming and encouraging me in my efforts to preach the gospel. I've had a wonderful day, capped off with a wonderful supper at uh, Mike and Cherie's house, and I ate too much to be standing here, but anyway, I'll do the best that I can. And I'm just thankful for the opportunity to be here with you this evening. We have come to this in our series to the lesson entitled Godly Living Presented. Presented. So far in our series, we have looked at Godly Living Commanded, Godly Living Demonstrated, Godly Living Living Chosen, Godly Living Clarified, and tonight, Godly Living Presented. And so I'm going to encourage you, if you will, to open your Bible to the book of Romans. Book of Romans. And I will preface our introduction and thoughts this evening by if our normal breakdown of the book of Romans is correct, then we normally look at the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters as being doctrinal, and then 12 through 16, we see that as being the practical section of the book of Romans. Now, I don't know that that is exactly how the book ought to be, but I know that is a simple way of breaking it down and opening up the book. But even if it is a practical aspect that we look at from 12 through 16, the practical aspect is as much doctrine as that which we find in chapters 1 through 11. And God does not give doctrine to us just so that we can know it. We are to practice our doctrine. And as we think about Romans this evening, I want you to think with me before we jump into chapter 12. I want you to look at chapter 11 and verse 36 because if this is the end of the doctrinal section, then notice what Paul has to say about our God. He says, first of all, that for of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Now if you go back to that 11th, or the 36th verse of chapter 11, then you'll see for of Him. And we see that God is the originator or the source of everything that we are to be giving Him glory for. So it is of Him. It is through Him. He is the one who sustains those things. And then it is to him so that he might identify and be identified as the owner of those things to which we are to be giving him glory. Now you think of, for of him, folks, everything we have in this life finds its origin in whom? Everything we have we owe to him. Every good and every perfect gift comes down from above. From the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither is there a shadow that is cast by his turning. We owe everything to him. And so that's no wonder that Paul would say in Acts chapter 17 concerning our God that it's in him in whom we live, move, and have our very being. Everything we have is of him. 
We need to give him what? Glory. We need to honor him for that. But not only is it of him, it is through him. Who sustains the world? Brethren, the older I get, the more I'm fascinated. Brother mentioned this week that he just likes to sit outside and watch the stars. I do too. Brethren, I think if we'd go outside and just get a lawn chair or even one of those squeaky chairs and just sat there in the darkness and just looked up and let God simply amaze us with his creation. It is of him, through him, and to him that all things are, and to him ought to be all the glory. Now, as we think about our lesson this evening, sadly, the majority of our world does not understand, does not have an inkling of knowledge of what Romans 11 and verse 36 is saying. They attribute everything in life to anyone and anything but God. They are here on this earth in so many ways by their own capabilities and their own reasoning and their own doing. They give God no credit for anything that they're able to have or to do in this life. They have no idea that He is the one to whom all glory belongs. So now, this accentuates the fact that you and I need to be living what kind of life? A godly life in a what? Ungodly world. Because if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and just think with me in your mind where it says uh, the mind, the, God, the devil, the Satan has, um, he has dulled the minds. He has the minds of the God of this world. He has blinded the majority of the folks that we run into on a daily basis. And so as we think about our assignment this evening, how is godly living going to be presented to those that we come into contact with and those that we have an opportunity to get involved in their lives? Do they see Christ living in me? In Romans chapter 12, arguably perhaps the most well-known section of Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, a body that is holy and acceptable and to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, that which is and good, that holy, lost my spot, good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now as you think about this particular section, I want us to notice verse 1, take it as one group by itself, and then we'll take verse 2 as a second. And I want you to notice we can show godly living when we look at verse 1 and we understand God's exhortation. He exhorts us. So let's notice that because there is a plea. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. We find a plea to be the very first thing that Paul gives. It is the word beseech and it means to call alongside. Call alongside to help. 
This is the word we find in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, the very same word where he says, Preach the word, be ready. You are to be ready and you are to reprove, rebuke, exhort. This is the same word that we find here in Romans chapter 12 where he is calling alongside uh, to call someone alongside that they might help us or to help someone to do that which is right. So here's the plea. I beseech you, do that which is right. And he says, I beseech you, therefore. The word therefore ties back through verse 36. God is to receive what? All glory. Therefore, he beseeches us. He encourages us. He exhorts us. He is encouraging us to be the people that he would have us to be. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. He identifies the people to whom he is talking and to whom he is speaking. Brethren, these are those that have been born of God. These are those that have been purchased with the blood of Christ. We think about Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 wherein we are talk, or Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders and he's telling them that they need to be shepherds of the flock, overseers of the flock, which is the church of God, which he has purchased, what? With his own blood. We are a blood-bought people. And we need to be thankful for the precious blood that Jesus shed on our behalf. But not only are we a blood-bought people, we are a family, 1 Timothy 3.15. We are to behave ourselves. You remember Paul writing to Timothy and he says, I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, then I want you to know how you ought to conduct yourself where? In the house of God. Because we are a family. So we think about the brethren to whom Paul is urging. Paul is encouraging Based on the fact that God is worthy of all glory, he says, I beseech you, I exhort you, come along beside and help someone. Well, how am I going to help them? Let's see. I am going to help them, and I'm going to help my brethren because of the provisions that God has given to us. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. When we talk about the mercy of God, we're talking about those things that are ours, that we, we so ought to enjoy and appreciate. And I want to note some of them just simply from the book of Romans. I would like for you to go with me, please, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, some of the things that we might mention and what we'll mention in this context is the love of God. Now think about this in verse 37. He says, Yea, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who what? Loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor heights nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. 
One of those things that ought to help encourage us, ought to help motivate us, ought to be those things that we are taking into consideration is the love of God. And that love was expressed to us first and foremost through the giving of His only Son, Jesus. Now notice in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, as we're talking about those things which ought to help us understand how we ought to conduct ourselves. And in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we talk about the grace of God. We look at verse 5, and it says, verse 1, I should say, and it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's it means to, what does it mean to be justified? Give you a little common explanation or definition. To be justified means God looks at me and looks at you just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. I have been justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. Therefore, having been justified by what? Faith. I would encourage you to go to Romans 1.5 and then go back to Genesis, uh, Romans 16.26 and pick up the definition of faith in that particular context. But notice we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Folks, there's a whole gospel sermon series in that context right there. If you were to develop all the things that Paul is identifying in verses 1 and 2, justification, faith, peace, the fact of the relationship we have with God, the fact that we are to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is a mouthful. And those are all things for all of us to what? Enjoy. Those are realities, not just concepts. Those are realities. So we know the love of God and we know the grace of God, but we also need to talk about the righteousness of God. Go to Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, if you would. The Bible says, Therefore, as by one man's offense, judgment came to all men. And by one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. So here is the righteousness of God as it is presented to us in the sacrifice and the work that Jesus did on our behalf. Other things that we could talk about. We have the gift of faith. Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then the, the mercy and the blessing of being able to raise up and walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6 verse 3 and following that context that is well known to us, but it says, Or do you not know that many of us, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into His death? How many of you are already in your mind thinking of the artistic drawing where you would have a cross and then you would have the water down below and you would have the blood drops and then the point that is made as we have been baptized into Christ, we have come into contact with His blood as He shed that in His death, and then as we were obedient to the gospel, we were raised up and we were able to walk in what? Newness of life. God looked at me how? 
just as if I'd never sinned. I have been justified. And that is part of those mercies and blessings that God has bestowed upon us. So when you look at Romans 12, verse 1, you'll see that there is a plea, there is a people, there are provisions, but there's also now a, a presentation. Go back to Romans 12 and verse 1, because he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. There's a presentation to offer. The word presentation means to offer or to place at the disposal of another. To get, dedicate, or to devote yourself to that one. And he's calling on us now to present ourselves unto God as what? A living sacrifice. Now we could go and we could read the entire book of Leviticus. Anyone want to do that this evening? Let's read the entire book of Leviticus because what does the book of Leviticus tell us? How can an unholy people approach a holy God? They were able to do that through the animal sacrifices that they offered, through the blood that they were offering. And so now they were presenting and they were approaching God through what type of sacrifice? A dead sacrifice. But now he says we are to present ourselves unto God as a what? A living sacrifice. So now as we think about offering ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, you need to make this note. This needs to be personal. I've got to offer myself in service and devotion to God. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. We individually, personally have to offer ourselves unto God. But I'm to offer myself to God as a living sacrifice, and I understand that it's personal, but it's also purposeful. Look at verse 1 again. That I might present myself in a manner which is holy and acceptable unto God. There is a purpose for all that we've been discussing. There is a purpose to the fact that we are to be mindful of the brethren. We are mindful of the plea. We are mindful of the mercies that God has extended to us. We're mindful of the fact that we are to present ourselves. There is a personal aspect and there is a purpose to this. Present yourself holy. What does holy mean? Set apart. Set apart for a particular purpose. In this context, what is my purpose? To be a personal living sacrifice unto God. That's my purpose. Is there any demand that God can make of us that is too great? Anything he could possibly ask of us to do in service to him and we just throw our hands up and say, I can't do it. My father-in-law used to have a saying, can't, never could. Because I've already entered that with what? A defeatist attitude. 
Now, I might be approached with something, and I have been multiple times, and it'll be, can you do this? And I'll say, well, I haven't, but I will what? I'll try. And oftentimes that first try is uh, pretty much a colossal failure. But what do you keep doing? You keep trying, you keep trying, you keep trying, and pretty soon you get to where you can do that. You have no apprehension about it. You have confidence in what you're doing. And so because you have tried. That's what God calls upon us to do. And then notice this. He calls upon us to do things, and he says, you put forth the effort, and I'll make sure the end product is as it ought to be. Folks, as we think about our personal and purposeful offering of ourselves as a living sacrifice it is that which is to be offered to God and it is that which is to be something we continually offer and we continually do as we give ourselves unto God we need to be ever mindful of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 wherein we are reminded that we are not our own we have been bought with a price therefore glorify God where? in your body in your body. God has given us this physical body. It has multiple purposes. It's how we offer our service and our worship unto Him. It houses our spirit. It houses our eternal soul. But as we think about our bodies, they are to be used to glorify God. And if I can't find a, thus saith the Lord for the things I'm doing, can I expect that to bring Him glory? No. So we got to be mindful of glorifying God. Paul would write and he'd say, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but Christ lives in me. And he says, the life I now live, I live by what? Faith. Faith in whom? Faith in the Son of God who did what? Loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul writes that in Galatians chapter 2.20 where he's been crucified with Christ. And then Paul would also say in Philippians chapter 1 verse 21, For me to live is Christ. But if I die, that's a gain. That, that's, that's, that's a profit. That's what that word gain would be identifying for us. Paul says for me to live is Christ, but if I die, then that, that's a profit. That's a gain for me. But then he also struggled because he had a great desire to stay where? In Philippi and to do great things and to help the brethren there. So as we look at this first verse and the exhortation that Paul gives us, we see that he has identified the plea, the people, the provisions, the fact that we are be a presentation offered unto God. And then there is a personal, purposeful, practical aspect to me offering myself to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. And folks, this is only logical. That's what the end of that first verse is stating, which is your reasonable service. When we consider, and we don't have time, but if you were to go from chapter 1 through chapter 11, and then as we introduce this with verse 36, and he says, now all glory belongs to God. With all of that information from chapters 1 through 11, it's only logical 
reasonable that we present ourselves unto him as a living sacrifice. Now point number two, verse two. Because he says now, and do not be conformed to this world. Now let's stop right here. Folks, there's passages in the Bible that for me, I refer to them as mirror moments. And that's where I need to do what? I need to go look in the mirror as James would encourage us to do. Go look in the mirror and see what manner of person you are in light of what the Word of God is teaching. For me, Romans 12, 2, in this particular aspect of do not be conformed to this world, that's a mirror moment for me. That is one of those verses when I think about it, when I read it, when I'm contemplating the message that verse 2 delivers, I've got to go do a check in the mirror because I cannot afford to deceive my own self. Eternity is too great and not making heaven is too horrible. I've got to have a mirror moment where I, I, I look and say, okay, is the world having an effect on me? Is it? And I've got to go check myself in the mirror. And folks, if we think the world doesn't have a strong pull, then I think we are deceiving ourselves. It's very difficult to live and to be in the world and not to be of the world. That's a difficult challenge. And so as we look at 12 and verse 2, now notice, and do not be conformed to this world. Literally, stop being conformed to the world is what Paul is writing to them. The way the tense is in the Greek language, this was something they were already doing, and he says, stop it. Stop being like the world. Well, if the Romans struggled with it, you think Christians in the 21st century might struggle with it as well? Stop being conformed to the world. Conforming yourself to the thoughts to the patterns, to the mindset of the world. Brethren, a lot of passages that would be brought into this as we think about stop conforming to the world. We think about perhaps Colossians chapter 3, first couple of verses wherein Paul says, if then you were raised together with Christ, then do what? Seek those things which are above. Set your mind on the things that are above. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Why would John have written 1 John 2, 15 if that was not a real problem for Christians to face? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. The things that are in the world, just sort of summarizing that, John says, they're not of God. Now he gives us three broad headings in that particular context. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Same things that the devil used when he tempted Eve in the garden. The devil doesn't have to change his game plan. What's the old adage? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. The devil doesn't have to change his game plan because his game plan what? It still works. 
lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the pride of life. These are not of God. And these are things that we need to do those mirror moments with where we're bringing ourselves into inspection. And don't be like the man James talks about who looks in the mirror and then turns around and walks away and he does what? Forgets what manner of man he was. If we just forget it, it'll be all right. Right? Is that how it is? We've made a proper assessment, but if I turn around and I just forget it, well, oh, I'm good. Folks, that's the way a lot of people approach things. Let's just ignore it and it'll go away. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I've got to be mindful of how I am to be conducting myself. Friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God. James chapter 4 and verse 4. Matthew 12 and verse 30. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you are against me. That'd be a horrible place to be. To be against God. You remember in Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel? They were trying to decide what they were going to do with the apostles. And Gamaliel gave them sage advice. If this be of God, you can't defeat it. And if this be of God, you don't want to be found fighting against God. We don't want to be against God. Brethren, all of us with what we know of God, what we know of salvation, what we know of what the Bible teaches, we ought to do a, a very clear examination of ourselves and ask this question. Is God happy with me? And if he's not, I need to do whatever I need to do to make him what? Happy and pleased with me. If you're not with me, you are against me. So now, stop being conformed, but rather be transformed. This is where we get our word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. And this is where we know that something has changed from one form into another. So notice what Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome. He says, I want you to, be, to not be conformed, pressed into the mold of the world, but you be transformed. You be turned into something totally different. You be transformed. Now that transformation takes place by the renewing of our minds. The renewing of our minds. Now we think about this transformation and the renewing of our minds. Brethren, I want to share with you in my estimation the battle for heaven or hell is right here. If I can get my thinking right, what does that do to my living? If my thinking's right, my living will be right. If my living is right, according to as the Bible would teach us, then I'm right with whom? God. The mind is the battlefield. If we can change a person's thinking, then we can get them to do things that would be pleasing to God. The most vile, wicked 
person on the face of the earth, if we could redo their thinking, we could get them to be Christians and go to heaven. Who's the greatest example of that in the Bible? He was Saul of Tarsus, but he obeyed the gospel and he transformed and he became what? The greatest apostle, arguably, that the church has ever known. The great apostle Paul. He thought in his mind, Acts 23, 1, I, I'm doing many things contrary to God. And I had a peace of mind doing that. I thought I should do many things. In his mind, he had no question about should I be persecuting Christians. Can you imagine as Paul lived the rest of his life with this image? He's holding the coats of the men who are stoning Stephen to death. Folks, this is one of the most fascinating things I think I've to think about in the entirety of the Bible. When Paul, well, we go back to Acts 6, and Stephen and Philip, they were in those Grecian that were taking care of the needs of the Grecian widows. They were handpicked. And so then we see where now Paul is going to be responsible for stoning, or at least agreeing with the stoning of Stephen. But then we don't read very much further or get on into Paul's missionary journeys and Paul is ready to come on one of his visits and make a stop in a house. And whose house does he stop at? Philip's. I wonder how that moment at the door went. Philip knew who full well who was at least in agreement, if not responsible for Stephen's death. And here he is welcoming him into his home. Think Paul's thinking was changed? What about Philip's thinking? Philip welcomed him and his group into his home. So as we think about being transformed and renewing our mind... Truly, that is the battlefield. The psalmist said in Psalm 119 and verse number 11, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now what is the Bible heart? Please don't point here. This is the Bible heart. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What will help to transform us? A steady dose of the Word of God. What will help to transform us? A clear inspection of our life. Let me just give you a few examples, and you can write these down or uh, note them mentally. But what is your number one goal in life? What is your number one goal? And when you state that goal, or write that goal, then is that in harmony with the Word of God? What is my goal in life? My number one goal. Number two, 
What is your number one purpose? And I know these two might be uniquely kind of tied together, but what's your number one purpose in life? I'm going to suggest to you that your purpose will be very much in line with your goal. Number three, do the activities you involve yourself in, are they matching up with your purpose and helping you to reach your goal? Do my activities line up with my purpose and help me to reach my goal? Number four, does your speech fall in line with your purpose and your goal and your activities? I was privileged to be a coach in the school system for several years. And I've coached a lot of kids in a lot of different ways. And I've come to this conclusion about sports. And I'm not, I'm not an antagonist against sports. I love sports. But I'm convinced that sports does not develop character. Sports reveals it. Sports reveals character. And so as we think about my activities and we think about my speech and we think about the way I conduct myself, that does not go away because I enter into a, an arena where there are marked lines, whether that be a baseball field or a softball field or a football field or a soccer field or whatever sporting event I might be at. That does not allow or give me a license to change how I talk, how I act, how I might set aside my purposes and I might ignore my goals. I might be able to forget my number one goal in life for the next two and a half hours because I got to play this game. Doesn't give me a license to do that. The activities that I involve myself in, they've got to be that which allow me to continue to work out my number one goal, my purpose, and my activities are to be in harmony with that. And I will say this about sports. I was happy with the Rangers last night. Now, if there's any Astros fans in here, I'm sorry, but... Uh, I was happy with the Rangers. So, anyway, uh, what about entertainment? I, di I digress. What about entertainment? Folks, we don't need to invite the devil in through that little thing we call the TV. We need to keep the devil at bay. We don't need to make him a welcome guest. And other areas of entertainment which are going to be in contradiction to the fact that we are to be doing what? Presenting ourselves as what kind of sacrifice? Living. Am I going to cease being a living sacrifice because I want to watch a movie? And it's, it's don't have about a half a dozen cuss words through it. Am I going to sacrifice that for television show 
Am I going to sacrifice that for some form of entertainment? I'm a living sacrifice. I'm to be holy and acceptable to God. And this is logical. What about my habits? Are there any habits that we need to abandon, need to get rid of? Things that we do and we know, well, I really probably shouldn't be doing this. These are things that we need to consider because these are things that are going to either help or hinder the renewing of our mind. And the renewing of our mind is how we're going to be transformed. And if I'm not being transformed, then, brethren, what, what am I being? If I'm not being transformed, changed, then I'm being conformed. And that's what Paul is forbidding. But then I'm also, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Good, acceptable, and perfect. I am to prove. The word prove means to put to the test. To examine whether something is genuine or it is not. I don't know if it's still the case with the Treasury Department, but years and years ago I was getting ready to speak on a lectureship and I was doing some research and I got to looking into the Treasury Department and I was able to discover that the individuals who uh, decide or determine whether dollar bills and all our currency is fake, or counterfeit, do you know what they study? The original. They don't study the counterfeits. They don't have all the counterfeit bills that have ever been made and they sit in a classroom and they study all of the counterfeits. What they do is they study the real thing. Then when the counterfeit shows up, what happens? They automatically recognize it. Now I know the Treasury Department, they've taken steps and we've got the little strips and dollar bills and the currency now that they can scan and all of that. But that analogy holds true for us as Christians. Folks, I don't have to worry about all the counterfeit religions if I'll study the real one. Study the real one. Study the original, study the true, study the gospel, study that. And I don't have to worry about going out here. Now, it may be beneficial to me to identify some of the religious practices. I'm not saying there's totally no benefit to that. But I need to make sure my emphasis is studying the original. And then I'll recognize the things that are questionable. So as we think about proving... We need to test whether it's genuine or not. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 that we're to prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Godliness is not afraid of examination. It's not. God's word is not, is not afraid of somebody examining it. And folks, we ought not to be afraid either of somebody doing what to our life. 
examining us. We ought not to be afraid of that. If we are, then what? Folks, as far as I know in my life, I've never had an x-ray. I've never had an x-ray. I may have had one before I was able to remember it. I don't know. But in my uh, years of knowing, I've never had an x-ray. But why do you get an x-ray? You think something might be wrong? Something's not right? So you go in for an examination. You have an x-ray. Well, you hope that that x-ray reveals what? Nothing. Everything's good. Folks, what does the Bible do for us? If we're honest, it does what? We have that x-ray. If we find and see that there are things that are amiss in our life, what do we do? We correct it. We change it. Because our whole goal and our whole purpose is to what? to be pleasing to God, to live a godly life, and to present that. And how do I present that? How do you present that? By being a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. By not being conformed to this world, but by, by being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that you might prove, that you might set forth that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I want you to think of those words. What do they begin with? Good. A G. Acceptable. An A. A P. Spells the word gap. Brethren, I pray for all of us in the room that there's not a gap between what we profess to be and what God knows us to be. There doesn't have to be. So if you're in the audience tonight and you need to make corrections in your life spiritually, you need to have the prayers of the church as a Christian. You know that your life is not measuring up. You know that in reality there's a gap that gap can be filled in. That gap can be erased. Whatever your need might be, we would like to help you with that. Or if you're in the audience tonight and you've never obeyed the gospel, we'd like to help you do that as well. Folks, heaven is too wonderful and beautiful a place to dare to miss. So whatever your need might be tonight, let it be known as we stand and as we sing.